Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. A supportive group environment is powerful. It provides a space where you can shed the weight of societal expectations, unmask your vulnerabilities, and tap into your emotions. As a group, you can support each other to confront your fears, insecurities, and unresolved conflicts. And by sharing in your experiences, your challenges, and your aspirations, a support group provides a sense of camaraderie, unity, and shared purpose that can lead to personal growth, finding your purpose, and re-establishing values and boundaries. My next guest has dedicated himself to providing these kind of spaces to empower individuals from all walks of life. Jacob Fishbein is an executive coach and facilitator who specializes in helping people and teams make and navigate their most pressing choices. He's passionate about helping men and women to make proactive decisions while pushing their endeavors forward in a purposeful and powerful way. So nice to meet you. Thanks so much for making the time to come on my podcast. Absolutely, Nick. It's great to be here. So before we jump in, would you be able to give a a bit of a background on yourself and the work you're currently doing just so our our listeners can learn a bit about you? Absolutely. So my name is Jake Fishbein. I'm a New York City-based writer and executive coach and facilitator. I originally grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a very is a small town, not too small, but a small-ish town, the capital of New Mexico out west. And I've been doing the work that I do now for the last five years. I didn't ever expect that I'd be an executive coach and facilitator. Definitely thought I'd be a writer. That's something that's been with me since I was a, a small kid. But I got into this work almost by happenstance when my first career after college was in public relations, and I hated it. And I learned a ton. I have so much gratitude for my boss during that time, but it was not my world. And I got into this work via a friend of a friend of a friend who recommended I do a series of workshops and work with a coach. And the workshops changed the way I looked at the world. And the coach that I hired, he became my mentor. We've been working on a novel together about a men's group for the last seven and a half years, which is so close to being done one yard from the finish line. And uh, it was really through the work with him, his name is Nick Papadopoulos, also a Nick, that yeah. I fell in love with coaching and with men's work and with helping people. In my mind, it's it's helping people find home, a place where they can trust themselves to take risks, to be authentically self-expressed, to really feel the fullness of who they are so they can feel fully alive and be proud of the choices that they're making. Amazing. I love that. And there's so so many topics in that to explore. And I think, uh, you know, the topic of men as well, like you're saying there, we we need the work that we need people like you doing this kind of work, because there's just not enough support there. And a lot of men want to explore these kind of things, but they don't know where to go. So I think it's just such an important thing. Is that what you've found through doing this work that there's been a real, you know, hunger for it with with men to to find that guidance? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that I've seen it change. I've I've been in a men's group for almost eight years. 
and been working on this book for almost eight years. And in that time, I've I've seen it change the men that are gravitating towards men's groups. When I joined, I joined my first group, the Dudes of Disruption, which I'm still in, when I was 24 years old. And everybody in the group was 10 to 15 years older than I was. And now I run a group myself with Nick called the Arena Men's Group. And we have everyone from 29 to 74 in that group. Wow. And I'm seeing younger men gravitate toward this, which I wasn't seeing when when I first joined. I mean, I would talk to my friends and they kind of looked at me like I was crazy. Um, and I understand that, that I definitely see a thing with men that in their mid 30s to mid 40s to early 50s, they reach this point and realize, holy, holy crap, I'm not fulfilled with my life. Yeah, I haven't spent my life doing what's important to me. I've done what everybody else told me to do and I'm unfulfilled. And oh, by the way, I don't have relationships with other men. Yeah, And that leads men to gravitate towards men's groups. But I'm seeing a shift in that now where I think men are just more con- younger men. I think younger generations are a little bit more predisposed to having these conversations about mental health and fulfillment. And so there's they're getting there earlier of, oh, I don't have what I want. Uh, yeah. Needs, I want support in a different way. Or, you know, one of the guys in the arena is someone who's who's one of my best friends. I've known him since we were six. And he originally signed up just because I asked him because I wanted to share what I was doing with him. And he's been in the group for almost three, almost, almost four years. Jeez, the group's almost four years old. And so I think that there are many men out there who don't know that they don't know how valuable being in a group with other men doing this type of personal development work would actually add to their life. Yeah, massively. You don't you don't know what you know. You don't know these things until you experience them, and it's so it's hard to sort of have that that hindsight until you've actually gone and taken that step. So yeah, I think it's it's such an important thing. Uh, and and what was so what was the main driving force when you got into this work? You're saying you had a different idea originally of the path you would go down. Was there a main catalyst or a few you know key things that really? made you realize, okay, this is my calling. This is the path I want to go down. There were a, a couple of things. And I mean, for most of my life, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, yeah. Well, I caveat that when I was a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist, of course. And then <laughs> when I was in uh, high school, I loved Greek history and I still do. And I wanted to be a, a historian of a particular era of Greek history, the Bronze Age. And kind of realized that I didn't really want to go to college to specialize in Bronze Age Aegean history. There wasn't necessarily a career in that. And so when I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And my two best friends, one wanted to be a doctor and the other wanted to be a professor. And they knew from a very young age what was for them. And I used to joke, you know, I'll figure it out sometime in the next 50 years. And my dad had always told me, he said, you don't want to wake up at 40 doing a job an 18-year-old wanted to do. And I really took that to heart, which was, I don't need to know right away, but I also had no idea, and I felt a lot of pressure to figure it out right away. And so when I first found coaching and personal development, it was in line with the things I'd, I'd already been thinking about. I've always been a writer. I had a food blog for many years called The Food Travels of a Coffee Snob, which was really the stories of meals and somehow tying those stories to lessons about 
life and how to live and, and reflecting in a more philosophical way. So I've always been asking questions and that's what coaching ultimately is, is the, the, the work of asking questions to help people learn. And I discovered coaching. Like I said, I took a workshop that I thought was a career development workshop, which was definitely not a career development workshop and had me confront the things that I didn't know that I didn't know and the blind spots I had about my own life. And I just fell in love with that work, that discovery. A discovery yeah. has always been something that that has really driven me. And I mean, to be fair, I joined my first men's group, the Dudes of Disruption, because Nick wanted to write a book about a men's group. And yeah. I was like, yes, let's do it. And I thought, if I'm going to write a book about a men's group, I should probably be in a men's group. And so, so you've gone, you've gone full method on this. You've gone I've really gone full method. Exactly. <laughs> I completely immersed myself in it and fell in love with it in the process. But I know a lot of men come to men's work because of a deep wound, because yeah. like Nick came to this work to heal his relationship with his father who'd passed away. And I know other men come when they've gone through a really challenging divorce or they've realized, like I was speaking earlier, that they're not living the life they want to live. And for me, it was not those reasons. I'm lucky to have a really strong relationship with my father and to have great male role models and to have always had close male friends. But there is something still in this work that has so lifted me up. And in turn, I've seen how powerful it can be for men in general to surround themselves with a community of men and have conversations that men don't normally have. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's fantastic. And and what what would be one of are they what would you say to men that are, you know, lacking purpose, lacking meaning, that they're they've got to that point in their life where, you know, they're in their 30s, 40s, and they've realized, you know, shit, I don't really know what I want. I'm not liking what I'm doing, and they feel stuck. And I think that's the the, the you know, one of the biggest things when you feel stuck and you don't know where to go it could be pretty horrific and it can lead to you know drugs and a whole range of coping mechanisms what would you say to someone going through that one the first thing is you're perfect exactly where you are it's mm. where you are and if you're stuck you're stuck like almost enjoy the stuckness mm. like, give yourself permission to be right there because only when you accept and acknowledge this is where I am, can you actually begin finding a pathway away from that. Yes. So that's where I'd start. It's just like, you're perfect. Like, got it. You feel stuck. It sucks. I've been there. Be there for a moment. And then find community. Don't try to figure it out alone. Go talk to people. Go figure out what you enjoy. Go begin actually investigating why do you want to be stuck? Because I one of my mental models is that when we're in a certain state, it's because we want to be there. Not consciously all of the time, but I know that when I've been stuck, it's because I was afraid of the responsibility of being unstuck. I was afraid uh -huh. of making the wrong choice. And so it was way more comfortable and easy for me to be stuck than it was for me to be unstuck. And I think that like connecting to that for any men, if you're stuck, it's like, why do you want to be where you are? And yeah. if you have a reaction like, Jake, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to ask you to like trust that process because if you're there, there's a reason you want to be there.
I yeah. think that's like the starting point is is really getting clear on where where what does the start starting line look like? Because until you know where you are, how can you possibly figure out where you want to go? Totally. And and our mind will trick us to, you know, we'll feel like there's a million reasons why we can't do it. And it it really is all coming down to a pretty simple thing that we're just afraid of the uncertainty and taking that step. So I think just acknowledging that and and again, it's why these men's groups are so important because for, I've been in this mental health space for about 13 years now and really it's, it stemmed from just sharing my story and everything I've done has been in that realm. And I think that's how we can relate to other people. When we hear other people's stories, we, you know, we find that they've got similar, they're going through similar things that we're going through. It just helps us to, to realize that, you know, there's nothing unique about what we're actually going through. Everyone has their own version of it, but the world's designed in a way to make us feel the opposite a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's, I think, uh, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before about Zoom and, how we've gone so far in the direction of everything virtual in the last three and a half years for obvious reasons and to, to a lot of benefit. But I look at our world and I see us becoming increasingly individualized, increasingly self-reliant, yeah. not really self-reliant because if technology went away, so many people would be completely screwed. But from the sense of I can go through my life without interacting with another human all day. Yeah. I can get done what I need to get done. As a coach, I need to have a Zoom call with somebody. But I can go to the grocery store and check out without talking to anybody. I can book an airline, a flight, and don't have to converse with anyone. I can walk down the street and get a coffee and not have to talk with anybody. And there's been a lot of research that's done that healing happens in community. And he yeah. humans are social. And that as we increasingly divest from human interaction and lean into technology, we're going to see this. We're seeing the massive impact on mental health where it's so important to surround yourself with people versus just using technology to fill the hole. It's that yeah. quick fix, but it's not a sustainable way of healing and growing and learning and developing. Yep. And I think we're more addicted to, you know, so many different things than we realize. I think almost all of us in some capacity have some level of addiction, whether it be to a, to social media, to work, to whatever it is. And I guess that's another question. Is that something that comes up a lot in your work and addiction and understanding it? Because we, you know, we understand that drugs, alcohol, you know, the things that we're being told are the normal addictions are there, but then there's so many other ones that we just don't even realize we're using as coping mechanisms. Totally. Something that comes up so often. Yeah. You think from drugs and alcohol and porn and, and sex but frankly, those are the ones that come up least frequently. We talk right. a lot about addiction to working out or addiction to work or addiction to television. Or the big one that we actually talk about a lot in our groups is addiction to drama, mm -hmm. addiction to the chaos that people are looking to escape and, and prove their stories right about the world so frequently. And that's an addiction that as humans, we're addictive beings and we're constantly looking to escape from the challenges of our existence. And addiction helps us do that. Uh, I remember a few years ago, one of the guys in the, in the arena group, he decided to take a month off drinking. And he asked who else wanted to join in. And a few guys did. And I'm the facilitator. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it too. And I know for me, drinking's not really an issue. I drink occasionally. I'm not a, a big drinker. 
but television was how I disconnect. And addiction is a way of disconnecting. And so I said, okay, for two months, I'm not going to watch TV. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends, and follow me on Instagram at Nick Brax. I really appreciate your ongoing support. Well, and it was it was amazing. It was really a freeing experience. And then I got COVID at the end of it and spent the first, I think, seven days of COVID not watching TV. And at the end, I was like, I, I can't. Like, I, yeah. I watch some. I, I, <laughs> like, sick as a dog on my couch. Um, but for all of us, there are the ways we go to disconnect. Yeah. And so many of them are not the obvious alcohol and drugs, but something that that seems seemingly healthy that yeah. is actually just our way of disconnecting from our experience and the people around us a hundred percent and what what were some of the things that came up for you when you did go through that and you cut that out because it, it's so difficult to do those kind of things and really just be okay with being still you know being bored allowing things to come up it's really difficult yeah it was it was a tough period. Um, I'm, I know I'm really good when I choose to do something and commit to it, I will do it. So there wasn't any point where I was sitting there. I was like, Oh, I've got, I've got to get my fix. Like I never had that experience, but it did require me to sit with a lot of uncomfortable emotions. And I had challenged with, with a friend not too long before that, and was sitting in a lot of guilt around what happened between she and I, and and regret and, you know, overthinking. And I think it's so important as people, but especially as men to create that space, to sit with the discomfort, yeah. to confront. I mean, it's the same thing as that stuckness we were talking about before. It's like anytime there's a, an unpleasurable experience, sit with it. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's been two years since I did that fast and there've been plenty of times where I've been feeling not so great and I've turned on the television because it's easier to disconnect than it is always to sit with. And there is value in avoiding sometimes that I remember at the beginning of COVID listening to a, a webinar by Tal, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar of the Happiness Studies Academy. And he was sharing the five keys to resilience. And one of them is avoidance. That when you're going through a challenging period, you sometimes do need to disconnect from it. Yeah. But like anything, when you're intentional with that and you do it for a short period of time, it can be powerful. It's when that becomes the norm and it becomes the coping mechanism and you never confront the thing you're disconnecting from. That's when it becomes a real big issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. It, it really is. So um, do you feel like in... I guess the world we're in now, like how big of an issue has it become where men almost now feel like they don't know how to be a man? I guess it's so, you know, the it's great that there's been a lot of conversation with <clears throat> on the other side of the spectrum, but I think a lot of the woke movement's almost gone too far where men don't even know, you know, how, how to behave or what if they say the wrong thing. So then a lot of the time they're just shutting down. And choosing not to participate at the chance of if they do express themselves that they'll be cancelled or that they'll say something wrong or be judged. Is that a big thing that comes up? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. It's uh <laughs> it it's interesting. In the group itself, I wouldn't say that 
comes up all that frequently. But when I look at the world, I see it all over the place. Yeah. And I know with my own experience as a younger man growing up in, in different times, it's been challenging to know what is like, what does it mean for me to be a man? And yeah. I remember in college being in a, a social, uh, what is it, political science class, and we were talking about feminism and reading uh, the books from the, the, the middle of the 1900s, which is, feels weird to say the 1900s, makes it sound like it was a long time ago. Yeah. I'll say that in the 20th century. Um, <laughs> and I remember all of the women in the class were speaking and all of the men were silent. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't say anything because if I say something, it's going to, it's going to be like turned into this huge mess. Mm. I feel like that's become more in the past few years. And I know even with dating, I'm, I'm really lucky. I met a, a wonderful woman about five months ago. We ha- we're in a, it's a great relationship. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, so I'm no longer dating, but when I was dating before meeting her, there was this uncertainty of how am I supposed to act as a man? Yeah. Am yeah. I supposed to pay for the first date? If I don't want to, is that okay? Am I supposed to be directive and just make choices? Am I supposed to allow for her to choose? And what I've learned in a lot of experimentation and trying different things and is that at this point, there's so many different versions of femininity, of masculinity, that it's really on an individual basis. It's like one yeah. person prefers this and another person prefers that. There is no... uh like cut and dry rigid rules of this is who we should be, which I think is a good thing that it gives the room for each of us to choose who do we want to be as men? You know, if you're a woman, who do you want to be as a woman? And yeah, I was on a podcast, I guess a few weeks ago with someone and she was saying, you know, she works with some male clients and they're saying, you know, they want to hold doors open for women and and pay for the first date. And they're like getting yelled at. They're like, well, what, what should they do? And I don't remember what I said in the moment, but I was thinking afterwards. And I was thinking, you know, if, if someone wants to do that, if someone wants to hold the more traditional male roles, go for it. Like, if that's who you are, like you, you get to be that. No one can take that away from you. But you have to be willing for people not to like that. Yeah. And if they don't like that, it's probably not your person. Yeah. That's good news. And it goes to the other side of... If you don't want to fall into those traditional male roles, great. Like, go be you. And some people aren't going to like that. And if they don't, they're probably not your person. And there is this addiction in men, I think, to being liked. Yeah. And I think it's really, it it gets in the way of everything. Because most people aren't going to like you. Most people aren't going to like me. Most people aren't going to be my people. And that's a really hard pill to swallow at times, but it gives the freedom to then show up as, well, people are going to judge me anyway. Might as well be who I am. Exactly. And that it's, it's more perpetuated than ever because of 
social media and wanting this addiction, I think male and female, to just wanting validation and and then being in echo chambers where you're just trying to get validated by like-minded people and then you can't handle it in, in real life to be exposed, you know, your real thoughts and feelings if you're in a situation like you're talking about there where you could be judged for it. So then you either don't say anything or you, you know, show a different version of yourself. And I think it's, it's like you're saying there, it's a real problem and it's something we need to learn that no matter who you are, it's impossible to have everyone like you. And people are the people that are going to stay in your life are going to be, you know, you know, going to have much stronger connections if you can be yourself. Yes. And it's okay. You know, no, no one's going to be, you know, there's no one size fits all. There's not. There's, and there never can be. And that's very freeing to recognize you get to be you, Nick. I get to be me. And we're going to yeah. find our people. And inside of that, I, I really believe, and I, this is something I, I want to see more of in the world, that even when we don't find our people, we still get to be respectful. We still get to be honorable. We still get to be empathetic. We still get to, to strive to understand those that don't like us. Exactly. That's And that's a real problem where... We it's actually so healthy to be able to interact and have different views and be around people that might have opposing values to us. And we don't have to agree with them. We don't have to choose to be their best friend, but we should actually have the mindset where we're open to what they're talking about and we're trying to learn from that. And that might help us inform our own view or find, you know, a new standing on where we are. And and I think that's the biggest problem, you know, with where the world's gone, this polarization and just these extremes. It's so unhealthy and there's no, you know, the answer's always somewhere in the middle. And I think we just need to learn to be okay with that, to be able to connect with more people, not isolate ourselves. Absolutely. It's it's such a challenge. I mean, everything's polarized. Yeah. And the world's not polarized. It's a, it's a, it's a soup. It's everything. It's uh, the answer, as you say, lies somewhere in the middle. And there's such an opportunity for us as humans and as people to operate in that middle, in that gray, in the soup, um, without our righteousness of being right. Because yeah. the truth is, we no, but none of, none of us know. None of, no. none of us have the answers. Uh, no. I do a lot of facilitation work and I run a facilitator training program with a really good friend of mine. And one of our, well, two, two of our, our core modules, our core pillars of facilitation. One of them is inclusivity and belonging. And the second is unlocking collective wisdom. That in inclusivity and belonging, it, that in order for people to feel like people need to feel safe in order to get to their next level. And I always say safety doesn't mean everyone agrees with you. It yeah. doesn't mean there's no conflict. Safety actually means that you feel so at home and at peace that you can engage in healthy conflict where you mm -hmm. can disagree and know nobody's going anywhere. Yeah. And I think that's so important because then you can hold the space for opposing viewpoints and have a real conversation and actually get to somewhere, not just agree to disagree because that doesn't really solve anything, but yeah. to set aside our own egos and look at, well, what's the solution in the middle? Yeah. Like, what's actually good for the whole, not just our own righteousness. And that goes into this idea of unlocking collective wisdom, which is 
in the past, the best leaders were the ones that had all the answers. Yeah. few who had all the answers. And as we go into a future that's increasingly emergent and uncertain, I mean, everything from economically to climate wise, we don't know what's going to happen. Our predictive models are predictive. We're going into an emergent world that's volatile and uncertain and ambiguous and complex that the best leaders are going to be the ones that ask the best questions to unlock the wisdom of the group. And the wisdom of the group can't rely on righteousness. It has to rely on that openness and looking towards something bigger than ourselves versus just wanting the validation, as you were talking about, that my point of view is correct. Yeah, and, and it feeds into what would to everything to do with that area, like we're talking about at the beginning of this fear of choosing to be out of our comfort zone and try and identify what we really want or take that risk and you know do what we really want because we've got this fear that if we do that things might not be okay and we might not cope or we might fall apart and it's having the comfortability that no matter what you do even if things don't go well you're going to be okay and you've got the support around you and you know that your innate values enough that no matter what you're okay you're fine as you are because that's so freeing, then you can go and you know explore whatever you want to explore. You can go down any path. So, um, yeah, super important. So I've got one more question, and then we finish with these five okay. closing questions. Okay. Um, so you're talking about this this uh, novel that you guys are writing, seven years in the process. Um, two parts of this question: How have you stayed patient through that process? And I can relate on a small level. I'm involved in the film and TV industry. And I've been working on a, a script that I'm trying to get turned into a TV show. And it we're, we're two years in. So we're very, um, you know, small, like very small compared to your time frame. But it's really hard when you're passionate about these things to stay, um, to be patient. So how do you, how do you stay patient in that? And in general, how do you manage um, the different, you know, parts of what you're doing? Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn more, I've released my first book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life, where I talk about my own journey with mental health and share tips from experts on how to maintain a healthy mindset. You can buy the book on Amazon or through my website at nickbrax.com book. So it's such a great question. And there are two ways that I've stayed patient. One is being really connected to the purpose behind writing the book which is to help people, to inspire people, to inspire men to trust themselves and to create more meaningful relationships. And just like staying connected to that purpose and knowing this isn't just about me. Mm. It's about Nick, who I'm writing it with. It's about the world. Yeah. That like, that's a trick you can use for anything. It's like stay connected to why you are doing this, to why this matters. And the second part is what really worked for me was just enjoying the process, like seeing the process as the result that, you know, there were guys in the men's group who'd be like, when is it going to be done? And I'd sit there and be like, when you write a friggin' novel, like you, you tell me how fast it takes. Yeah. Art is one of those things that it's not about the finished product. It's about the journey of creating it and the insights and the learning that actually come from the joy of creation. Yes. And so for me, I just loved writing it. 
And I love the discovery that I went on and what I learned about myself and what I learned about men and what I learned about my friends and the relationships that are important to me. Because even though it's a novel, I used it as a healing tool to process and learn about challenging relationships in my life. And there were definitely times where it's like, I just want to be done. Yeah. And I deal right back into the process and just fall in love with the process again. So not being attached to the outcome. I love that. Uh, such a great value. Of, and you can apply that to anything. We are so, mm. we're a, a society that is addicted to outcomes and results. Yeah. Productivity outcomes, results. And I love that. I got, I got inspired listening to that answer because I mean, that's, that's what I love about anything in the creative world and what attracted me originally to, you know, pursuing acting and being in that world. I was loving it because it was the first time I found something where it was just about doing it for the sake of doing it. There literally is no way to compare it to what someone else is doing. There's no finish line. The goal is to get to the end of your life and still be learning and growing and, there's, you know, there's no finish line with it. Where, whereas we're taught in society, it's about how do I be more productive? How do I make more money? How do I keep, you know, moving up, 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 up? And it's just debilitatingly stressful. It's, you know, it's not enjoyable and you can't, it's very hard to enjoy the process when that's what your mindset is driven by. Yeah. And the only finish line we have is death. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. as you're speaking now, I'm, cause I always think that like the way we go through the world, when we talk about our men's groups, it's like the men's group is a metaphor for your life. Yeah. You could look at your goals are a metaphor for your life. And so if you're someone who's just addicted to the result or in our society, we're addicted to the result, to the outcome of the productivity, you might extrapolate that to say that when we look at the scope of our lives, we're way more concerned with death than we are with living because death is the outcome. Yeah. All of us are going to experience that. So how do we enjoy where we are? How do we be fully alive regardless of the outcome? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so powerful. And if you can have that mindset, it's just, it's a reminder. If you remind yourself that simple fact that's scary, but true, you know, we're all going to die. Then how do you actually want to spend today? Forget about everything else. How do you want to spend this day if you, with the knowledge that you're going to die and every day is, you know, an opportunity to live your life in a way that, is according to your actual values and, you know, makes yeah. you happy. And yeah. And tomorrow's not promised to any of us. We, yeah. do, we don't know that we have tomorrow. We pretend that we do. Yeah. And so how to, how to be fully alive each day, knowing that that's going to look different every day and fully alive does not mean like taking names and kicking butt and like, it's, it's different for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. We've got a few minutes left here. So I've got these five closing questions. These can be sort of quick answers, whatever comes to mind for you. And try not to throw you too far under the bus here. They're pretty pretty straightforward, um, but we'll see. So the first one is, what's the best childhood memory that comes to mind for you? Oh, man. The first or, or one, one of the best. <laughs> one of them, um, speaking of screenplays, when I was about eight, my dad and I went to DC for a trip together and we watched about half of Mission to Mars and hated it and decided we could write a better movie. So we spent the next two years, every Sunday, when my brother was at Hebrew school and my mom was teaching it, uh, we spent it writing a screenplay called The Severn Zone, which was about a mission to Mars. And oh, wow. Like, we wrote a whole screenplay, like 130 wow. pages. Uh, we submitted it to Robert De Niro's film festival. It did not get picked up. 
Um, but that is such a sweet memory of spending that time with my dad and and really creating my first real partnership in in a creative project. And what an amazing gift from your dad. I mean, a lot of parents won't, you know, go to that length with their kid, and that's giving you, you know, that that experience and that sort of um, that 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 knowledge that you know you can go and try and follow whatever it is that you're passionate about. I think it's just such an important thing for parents to do. So I love that. What do you think is currently the biggest burden on mental health in society? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, mean, I, uh, I mean, there's so many ways I can answer this. Yeah. But I think technology, honestly. And I think that includes everything from social media to automatic checkouts to when you call a company and you have to go through 17 button clicks to talk to a human being and the increasing use of AI that all of this is disconnecting us from our humanity and human interaction. And as we were talking earlier, community is how we heal. Yeah. And I don't think, I think these devices offer immense opportunity and can certainly aid in a lot of mental health stuff, but at the same time are really disconnecting us from each other and from ourselves. And I think that's, we don't know what the impact of that will be on generations to come. And I can't exactly. imagine it's going to be good. No, and and I couldn't agree more. And like you said, we we act, we really don't know. Well, you know, kids now are growing up with a device in in their hand and we don't have the data yet to see what the long-term impact of that is. So it's, it's pretty scary and something needs to change. Yes, agreed. Uh, what is your personal definition of happiness? For me, it's being fully alive. And at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of your life, looking back proud of the choices you made. Love that. What's your biggest fear? Oh, boy. Um <laughs> You know, for me, I know the fear that's often there and it's an irrational fear, but it, it's constant. It's been with me since I was a kid is not doing it right, mm-hmm. is making a big mistake, is like missing something. And I think about my career sometimes and worry, um, you know, I, I'm not as far along as I want to be or I should be. Or, you know, had I only gone a different route, it would have ended up, it would be different. Yeah. And so this this fear of one of my core stories, disempowering beliefs, is that I make bad choices. Mm-hmm. And as much work as I've done, those stories don't go away. And that still sticks with me sometimes that, you know, I make bad choices. I I will make a mistake. Yeah. And it's a, it's perfectionism, a lot of that. And I, I can relate to it so much. And I love what you said there about, you know, you do the work on yourself. The stories don't go away, but what you learn is you can choose whether you want to buy into that story or not. And the more you can, you know, move away from that story, it'll, it might stay there, but it won't have that same power over you. And you'll realize it's not, it's not true. We don't have to believe all of these stories. Exactly. And I always think those stories, I made those up for a reason. We all did to protect, they made it up to protect myself and it worked until it stopped working. Um, So it's like how to have compassion for that story as a part of who I am um, I love to, that. To like become friends with it 
And there are times where it's really loud and it's hard to remember that it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's really powerful. Well, final one here. What are you most proud of? Ooh, I mean, I could talk for a long time on that. Um, you know, right now, what I'm most proud of, and there's so many things over the course of my life that I have pride in, but I'm yeah. really proud of this new relationship I'm in, that it took a long time to be open again to being in a relationship. And I'm really proud of of not giving up on that and remaining open and continuing to put myself out there and being willing to be fully myself with my girlfriend and uh, for the relationship we're building. That it's really exciting and I'm excited and I'm proud of myself and for us of where we are. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I wish we had more time. I've loved loved this chat with you. Where, where can we send our listeners if they want to learn more about you? Absolutely, Nick. Well, one, it's been an absolute pleasure being on with you today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope there are more in the future. Uh, people can find me in a couple of different places. I'm on Instagram at, at the coach Jake. To be fair, I don't post very much. I think if you listen to this, you can tell my feelings on social media. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also, you can find me at jakefishbine.com or at thearenaseries.com. And that's where all the good stuff on the men's group is. All right, great. Well, we will put all of those links in the show notes. So anyone listening, please make sure to check it out. And Jake, so great chatting to you. And yeah, I'd love to stay in touch and do this again sometime soon. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jacob Fishbein for joining me today for Move Your Mind. Also, a huge thank you to those of you listening. I really appreciate your support. If you'd like to learn more or connect with me personally, visit www.nickbrax.com or send me a DM on Instagram at nickbrax. Please don't forget to click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends and follow me on Instagram. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.